We'll be in the parallel accounts of 2 Chronicles 33, 2 Kings 21. If you want to be prepared to look at those passages, Hezekiah is dead. He's been dead a long time. His son Manasseh now becomes the king. We begin to note spiritual principles about which we are told in the Bible that humanity in general spends its history seeking to deny. But those spiritual principles, those realities just continue to be presented and demonstrated all the way through the scriptures. Those realities are mankind possesses a fallen nature. We are in sin. We have a sinful nature. Number two, God is gracious. And number three, we cannot escape the nature, the evil nature with which we are born unless and until God chooses to divinely intervene. Grace. It's that way all the way through. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve, <clears throat> they didn't deserve anything other than the penalty of death immediately. And not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. But God graciously gave them a promise of a redeemer, a coming redeemer, who as the last Adam could overcome the effects, the deadly effects of the first Adam for us. Now that struggle goes all the way through the scriptures. Hezekiah was a pretty good king. Seemed as though he had left things in good shape. Although he followed an evil king and, and those evil kings up until, I don't know, a few chapters ago, those evil kings had been reserved for the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, one after another. The king of the north, the northern kingdom, was not the son of David, did not possess the Davidic covenant between God and David and his seed. And so the northern kingdom is, is left to its political conspiracies and so forth. And the appeal to the fallen nature of man was just not kept in check by the throne because there was no spiritual life on the throne of the kings in the northern kingdom. So they disappear from the scene. They collapse in sin about, a, what, 120, 130 years or so before Judah does. However, Jehoshaphat, remember that guy? He was a good king in the 
southern kingdom, but he buddied up to Ahab and Jezebel. And we saw a couple of passages where their families got together and the evil that had enswathed the northern kingdom had been introduced to the hearts of potential leadership in the southern kingdom, the family of the king, Joshua. Well, it worked itself out. And for the first time, then right after that, we saw the first one of them who in the southern kingdom did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And I can tell you on a, a national perspective, on a, on a leadership perspective, when that Pandora's box is opened, you're not going to get her back in. It's, it's just, it's just going to spread. It will find its way easily into the hearts of a fallen race such as we are. And so our natural tendency, you know, no one seeks after God. That's what Paul says to the Romans. Nobody is born and then in his natural life living to seek after God, the true and living God. God has to intervene graciously in our lives in order to resurrect us from spiritual death, from the spiritual deadness of the natural man. That principle is seen, of course, alive and well in the Old Testament as it is here. Hezekiah was a good king. He did a lot of good things. He did what was right, what was good. Southern kingdom of Judah, one of the sons of David who sat on the throne, but he had a son. Remember he asked, he asked for 15 years to be added to his life. Well, he asked for time and God granted him 15 years. Three years into that 15 years, Manasseh was born. See, they'd have been better off if Hezekiah just died because this Manasseh guy, he was rough, evil. And he brought uh, evil to the land. So this appeal to the baser instincts of a fallen nature will exist and live and progress and prosper unless God himself moves graciously. He doesn't have to. God doesn't have to do a thing. The aseity of God. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need me, doesn't need you, doesn't need anything. He's God. That doctrine is called the aseity of God. But it is by his pleasure that he does the things that he does. And it pleases him in his creation, even in the fallen creation after Adam and Eve and their sin. It pleases him to bring to himself his own people he can inhabit, praises whom he can inhabit and he can bless them. But they're not gonna come to him, he's gonna have to go to them. They're not gonna call out to him, he's gonna have to call out to them First John says, we love because God first loved us. We didn't love him first. He came to us. 
So this problem of fallenness is a generational thing that has to be dealt with spiritually by the people of God. We, the, the, the generation before us, those who were God's elect, those who were God's people, they fought the battle and they did what God had called. But now it's this generation. Hezekiah did his thing and was pleasing to Yahweh but that doesn't automatically mean that Manasseh is going to do the same thing. Matter of fact, he doesn't. And he brings sorrow to his people. Sin brings sorrow. It brings slavery. As a matter of fact, we are slaves to sin. That's what Paul writes. In our fallen nature, until God causes us to be born again, we are enslaved to sin. We can't help it. It's who we are. To be filled with pride and selfishness. And in, out of the heart of man, Jesus said, pursue these things such as murder and, and adultery and licentiousness and all that stuff. That comes out of the heart of a man. Because in our fallen condition, there's no depths of depravity into which we cannot fall. So God according to his good pleasure and will, intervenes graciously as he sees fit, according to his pleasure. Now, Manasseh is born into a, a, a good setting. His father leaves things in a good setting. But now remember, the leaven of sin leavens the whole lump. Back to Jehoshaphat. He was a good king. But he was a little too lax in the friends that he made. He made friends with the kings of the northern kingdom. He even helped them. He sent his armies to go and help them in war. And to deliver them when they didn't deserve deliverance. But he did. So having been a righteous king, he reigned, Jehoshaphat, reigned over a prosperous Southern kingdom. They were wealthy. They were somewhat feared and, and respected in the world in which they existed. And this kept them safe and secure. But he allowed, he allowed people within his family to become friends with uh, the world. And the world has a strong draw to it. It's that way in every generation. So now this Pandora's box has been opened in the southern kingdom. And we saw how certain, king, certain kings had allowed false worship. Graven images, high, high places, altars. As a matter of fact, one of them even himself stopped worship to Yahweh locked up the temple in Jerusalem and built altars, groves, and so forth to false gods. And because it was so sensual, we've gone over how, what kind of worship that was. It was, a, it was a sensual, sexual thing, worshiping the gods and goddesses of fertility. 
So this strong attraction has to be dealt with. Now here we are, Manasseh becomes king after Hezekiah. As a son of David, of course, he carries the covenant. He's on the throne. But he fails miserably when he starts out. So let's look at it. We'll be in 2 Chronicles 33 first, and then we'll go, I think it's at the first nine verses or so, and we'll see what 2 Kings says about the same thing. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Now, do you think that he is fully emotionally and mentally and spiritually mature at the age of 12? Nah. But somehow, the influence that comes into his life and upon his life comes obviously from external influences that in some way had come into his life, into his household, and he was not protected the way that he should have been. So here he had a 12-year-old kid, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. And he did that which was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, 12 years old. Evil. He was born that way. You don't have to teach a child how to be bad. Just leave him alone. He'll be a criminal. You have to teach a child how to be good. Here it is. He did that which was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Like the abominations of the nations that Yahweh had driven out from before the sons of Israel. Why is it that the people of God generation after generation have to keep fighting the same battles over and over again? Generation after generation. It was my generation that fought in Vietnam and one of the most discouraging things to soldiers in Vietnam was the South Vietnamese either didn't have the heart or whatever. And so the United States military had to come in and win these hills. You know, the hills were numbered, hill whatever. And as soon as they left the South Vietnamese in charge of the hill and withdrew, the hill fell to the North Vietnamese Viet Cong. He had to go back and take the same hill all over again. It's that way in spiritual battles. We have to lay a strong foundation and we have to, as our children come up in the next generation, they have to be enabled with a strong defense before they're 12 years old. I mean, this has to happen as soon as they're born because they can't help it, but they are born with a little evil nature that has to somehow be brought into check. Well, this guy's wasn't. So look what he did. He went right back to doing what all of the other nations do. Same gods, same goddesses, same licentious behavior, same wicked behavior as before his father Hezekiah. 
And he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had demolished. He erected altars to the Baalim. And he met Asherah. He prostrated himself to the entire host of the heaven. And he worshiped them. So here's what that means. The plethora of existing false gods that existed in his day, he found a way to worship every one of them. This was his life. This was fun. He this was cool. Kid, he was a kid. And he gets into his teen years and his early 20s. He's just, he's just uh, you know, he thinks he's being cool and having a great time. He's displacing all of the goodness that his father had so fought for and reestablished in the hearts of the people. But it's another generation now. This thing has to keep going and going. You can't, you, you must be relentless. You can't ever surrender one inch of what the blessed and holy word of God instructs us to do. You can't compromise in any of it. But there was worse than just compromise. There was blatant blasphemy and disobedience. So that what? He washed, he worshiped every God that existed. Prostrated himself to the entire host of the heaven. He worshiped them. He built altars in the house of Yahweh concerning which Yahweh had said, and he said this to Solomon when Solomon built the temple. In Jerusalem, my name shall be forever. Okay, here's Solomon's temple. It was some months back, but you remember when we were in the early part of this study and Solomon led this tremendous worship service when they dedicated the temple. It was a, it was a marvel, even just to read about it. Just to read about it, you almost felt like you were there enjoying the praise and the relationship, the bond that had been established between Israel and the God of Israel, Yahweh. My name forever, my name for in this place. Now, what does this guy do? He curses the name of, of Yahweh. But, but he, he, does, he does that by what he does, his behavior. In the courts of the house of Yahweh, the temple, all right? He built altars to the entire host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. What else did he do? Malach, you remember that guy, that God? Offer your child to Molech, throw it into the fire of the false God in some kind of frenzy. He passed his sons through fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. In the New Testament language, that transliteration becomes Gehenna, which is illustrative of the lake of fire in the Revelation. He passed his sons, these are children, babies, through the fire, threw them in the fire, valley of Ben-Hinnom. 
He practiced soothsaying, divination, sorcery. He consulted necromancers and those who divine by the dideo bone, a spiritism, spiritists. And he did that, and he did, mu- and he did much that which was evil in the eyes of Yahweh to provoke him. So he's gone from being evil to being much evil. Unchecked. His fallen nature will spiral downward endlessly until he dies unless God intervenes. There's no hope for him except for God. There's no hope for him. And him being the son of David who's on the throne in Jerusalem and the king of Judah, there's no hope for Judah. Now there's a covenant at stake here, the covenant of David, the Davidic covenant. And that covenant involves Jesus, the son of David, who will sit on the throne finally and forever. So this can't go on. When you think he couldn't get any worse by building altars inside the temple to false gods, he got worse, took his baby sons, threw them in the fire, the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the Molech. Then he became active. He would, all kind of witchcraft and evil, consulting people, necromancers who said they would consult dead spirits for him, you know. He was going to receive strength from the spirits of the dead. This guy was weird. Really not any weirder than people are today, I guess. On the fringe of humanity and the fallenness of their nature. He did much that was evil in the eyes of Yahweh to provoke him. He placed the graven image of the idol that he made in the house of God temple concerning which Elohim had said to David and to his son Solomon in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will establish my name forever. This is the place. How blasphemous can you get to place graven images and to build altars to these gods, these false gods, to worship them and to engage in worship and to become a worship leader in such a thing. And I will not continue to remove Israel's feet from the land that I've given their forefathers if they will but observe to do all that I've commanded them. And according to all the Torah, the law, the statutes, the ordinances that Moses, my servant, commanded them. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to astray, to do what was evil, more than the nations whom Yahweh had destroyed from before the sons of Israel. They were worse than the pagan nations. They took this evil thing, made it worse. 
One thing that makes it worse is that it's in the house of Yahweh, the temple. Another thing, it's one of the sons of David leading this thing. And he leads the people into this thing. You see, look. Let me be crude. Not that I've never been crude before. And give you an an example. Old Brother Owens finally died. He tried his best to stand on the word and to be careful to protect his flock against things that were evil and bad and idolatrous and against the word. But the new guy came in. He didn't like the old ways. So he hired strippers to come and strip when we had an offertory. He set up a wet bar back there and and he passed out (laughs) so that people could get the full experience of what was going on. This is, that's the kind of worship that they did, you see. It was priests and priestesses who were prostitutes and homosexuals and they were, they were engaging in all kinds of perverse behavior as part of their worship. This is what this new king had done to the people of God and to the house of God. This is what he had done. And he was really, you know, just, I guess for the sake of what, popularity? I don't know. To provoke Yahweh. Led the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah to astray, to do what was evil, more than the nations whom Yahweh had destroyed from before the sons of Israel. It's unthinkable. Now, here's what 2 Kings says about the same thing. 21, beginning in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old, became king, reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did what was evil. In the eyes of Yahweh, like the abominations of the nations that Yahweh had driven out from before the sons of Israel, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars to the Baal, and he made an Asherah, as Ahab the king of Israel had made, and he prostrated himself to the entire host of heaven, and he worshiped them. He built altars in the house of the Lord and the house of Yahweh, Bet Yahweh. Concerning which Yahweh had said in Jerusalem, I will establish my name. He built altars for the entire host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. He passed his son through fire. He practiced soothsaying divination. He consulted necromancers and those who divined by the Jadobon. And he did much that was evil in the eyes of Yahweh to provoke him. And I will not cause, continue to cause Israel's feet to wander from the land that I've given to their forefathers. If they will but observe to act in accordance with all that I've commanded them. According to the law of Moses, my servant 
has commanded them. But they did not obey. Manasseh led them astray to do what was evil more than the nations that Yahweh had destroyed from before the sons of evil. This is the kind of thing that they were brought out of Egypt and out of bondage into Canaan to displace and destroy. The Canaanites had defaulted on their right to live because of how evil they were. And the very people responsible for that have resorted to the very worship and the very gods that were given the promised land to destroy. They did not obey. Yahweh will not allow this. So what does Yahweh do? Well, let's look at it. Manasseh's repentance and restoration. Back to 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10. Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and his people. They didn't listen. How did he speak? He sent prophets. Yahweh brought upon them the generals of the king of Assyria. I've learned something in life. God knows how to get my attention. If I was the king of Judah and some guy came from another nation and arrested me and put me in prison in a strange land and humiliated me, I would begin to think that I had done something wrong. Yahweh brought upon them the generals of the king of Assyria. They seized Manasseh with hooks and bound him with copper chains and brought him to Babylon. Now, why didn't they take him to Nineveh? Why Babylon? Well, it's just adding insult to injury, but it's also telling us that this could be a precursor of what God will do, but he didn't take the people into Babylon at this time. And so it says then, when he was distressed, he entreated Yahweh his God. He humbled himself greatly before Yahweh the God of his fathers, before Elohim the God, before God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And Yahweh accepted his prayer. He heard his supplication. He restored him to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. Not all that bunch of stuff he'd been doing before. God got his attention. He was so low that there was only one place to go for help. And that was to Yahweh, the true and living God. It's a great lesson. No one is ever so low and bad that he can't turn to Yahweh and pray that Yahweh would hear his prayer. Afterwards, he built an outer wall to the city of David on the west of Gahan in the valley, even to the fish gate. He surrounded the awful and raised it exceedingly. He placed military officers in all the fortified cities in Judah. He removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Yahweh and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem. He cast them outside the city. He built the altar of Yahweh. He sacrificed on it peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings. He told Judah to worship the Lord God of Israel. Yahweh, God of Israel. So things are different. Except 
But the people were still sacrificing on the high places, but only to Yahweh, their God. They're coming around, but it it took a tremendous act of grace on behalf of God's part to reach into the heart of such a wicked fellow as Manasseh. But now God's going to get glory out of all of it. The rest of Manasseh's affairs and his prayer to his God, the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of Yahweh, God of Israel, behold, they with the affairs of the kings of Israel. His prayer and its acceptance, his sin, his treacherous acts, places where he built high places, erected the Asherim, the graven images, before he humbled himself, behold, they're inscribed with the words of Hosea. Manasseh slept with his fathers. They buried him in the house, in his house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. And here's what 2 Kings says about that. He always spoke, spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Since Manasseh has committed these abominations, he has done more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him did. And he caused Judah to sin with his idols. Therefore, Yahweh, God of Israel, said, Behold, I bring a calamity. A little more explanation here in 2 Kings. Behold, I bring calamity on Jerusalem and Judah concerning which the two ears of all of those who hear it will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria, the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. He wipes and turns it upside down and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies and they will become plunder and prey for all their enemies since they did what was evil in my eyes and they constantly provoked me since the day that their forefathers left Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh, shed very much innocent blood until he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides his sin that he caused Judah to commit to do what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. That tells you what had happened that led up to his repentance. The rest of the events of Manasseh and all that he did, his sin which he sinned, are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And Manasseh slept with his forefathers and was buried in the garden of his house, the garden of Uzzah, his son Ammon, reigned in his stead. Here we go again. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. <laughs> and he did that which was evil in the eyes of Yahweh as Manasseh his father had done and all the graven images that Manasseh, his father, had made, Ammon sacrificed, and he worshipped. He worshipped them. He did not humble himself before Yahweh as Manasseh, his father, had done. For he, Ammon, became more and more guilty, and his servants conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. And the people of the land slew all the conspirators against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his stead. Helps on the way. Josiah. Now let's see what 2 Kings says. Ammon, 22 years old, and became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mashilimeth, 
the daughter of Harus of Jotba. And he did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, Manasseh, his father had done. And he went in all the ways that his father had gone and he worshiped pagan deities that his father had worshiped. He prostrated himself to them. He forsook uh, Yahweh, the God of his fathers and did not follow Yahweh's way. Ammon's servants conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. The people of the land slew all the conspirators against King Ammon and the people of the land appointed his son Josiah in his stead. The rest of the deeds of Ammon that he did are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And he buried him in his grave in the garden of Uzzah. And his son Josiah reigned in his stead. Okay. The evil that Manasseh had done is what stuck to the life of Ammon. Not his father's repentance and restoration, but the evil. And he wanted life back like it was. And so Yahweh permitted, allowed him, oversaw his assassination. And now the people go against the conspirators and there's great confusion in the land because of sin and because of how there's still so many people who halt between two opinions. But it gets better because Josiah is about to come on the throne. We're going to stop there and we'll have our deacon prayer time.